0: Now the Gospels, so the four Gospels in the Bible, which we're thinking about this morning uh, because we're going to be studying the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in small groups and on Sunday evenings uh, this coming term, uh, so we're going to think a little, about the go- a little bit about the Gospels and how to, how to read them. The Gospels, uh, you would have thought, um, should be very precious to us, and I, I dare say for, for many of you here this morning, the, the Gospels are very precious to you. Um, So this is, um, as I'm sure you can see, uh, Luke's Gospel. uh, This is from the Codex Sinaiticus. Very exciting. You can see it in the British Museum. Um, So the Gospels have been very precious to Christians right from the very beginning of uh, church history. Um, After all, they are the the place within the Scriptures uh, where we engage with the Lord Jesus Christ most directly and personally. Now, all of the scriptures, of course, are about the Lord Jesus Christ and speak of him, um, but the, it's the Gospels that we, where we meet him, if you like, uh, closest, almost face-to-face. Um, and in fact, one of the great things about the Christianity Explored course is that uh, you, don't, you can say to people that you don't, you're not going to persuade them necessarily about uh, Christianity, you don't have the power to do that, but what you can do is introduce them uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And uh, the way that they do that in the Christianity Explore course is to to read Mark's Gospel and then people encounter uh, Jesus uh, for themselves. So the Gospels are very precious and uh, very uh, important. Uh, And that's been true right from the beginning, as I was saying. So this is uh, Augustine. Um, This is probably a medieval picture of Augustine, which is why he's wearing a funny hat, um, Augustine was a great theologian. He was also a great preacher, and uh, he, he would uh, preach on the Gospels, and uh, Matthew's Gospel being his, his, his favourite, uh, very, very frequently. Or well, this is uh, a picture of someone called John Chrysostom. Chrysostom is the name he was given. Chrysostom just means golden lips. So he was thought to be such a good speaker uh, that they called him golden lips. <laughs> slightly strangely um, he's an interesting character actually so his early Christian training he's sort of self-trained in some ways um, early in his Christian ministry he spent two years standing continuously I don't know how you can imagine um, actually doing this and his task as he was doing that was to commit the Bible to memory the whole of the scriptures uh, to memory which is great you know, for his later preaching and ministry less good for his kidneys Uh, which were permanently damaged in the process. Uh, So that's given me a few ideas for the ministry trainee scheme uh, here, uh, which will roll into effect over the next uh, few years or so. Okay, so very, very precious things, the Gospels. Nevertheless, I think we have to say that the Gospels, um, certainly ever since the the 19th century, have been under attack. Um, This is a character, for example, called David Strauss. Uh, he looks a little sinister even in that picture, isn't he? We should have sort of boos and hisses at this point. He may have been a perfectly nice bloke um, up, up front of personal. However, um, he was one of, the, one of the characters within the 19th century who began to attack the historical of authenticity of the Gospels and uh, wrote a, a, a very influential book called The Life of Jesus Critically Examined in about 1835. That was translated into English by Uh, somebody called Marion Evans, who you probably better know as as George Eliot um, in 1846. It then had a really big influence in the English-speaking world. And the basic idea in this book was that uh, uh, the Gospels, rather than being um, a history of what was going on in Jesus' time, were much more a history of what was going on in the early church time. And uh, these are the early church stories that, that, that were basically myths created by the early church uh, to support what they were doing. And scholarship has kind of followed in that kind of direction. The Gospels are not a window into the life of Jesus at all, according to a lot of scholarship, but a window into the early church. Uh, these, a window into a number of divided communities. So you have Matthew's community, you have Mark's community, John's community, Luke's community. Uh, they've all got slightly different perspectives on, on Jesus and they're all generating these, these myths and stories to kind of sustain what they're doing. And um, that's what the gospel is all about, and that's what our scholarship tries to kind of uh, peer into. Um, so that's one thing. So our confidence in the historical credibility of the gospels has uh, been under attack from that. I think we're probably still reeling from that. Um, the other issue is probably a bit of confusion about how we approach these books um, even among Bible believers, there is some confusion about how to approach a gospel. It's probably true that in the, in the Reformation, the, the, uh, the, the emphasis in uh, the Christian world shifted from the gospels to Paul's letters, because you know, it was all about the doctrine of justification, and all of uh, uh, Paul's letters were kind of key in trying to work out what was going on there. Um, it's possible at that time um, the, the gospels became slightly more neglected. Uh, within Christian circles when believing circles, and I think uh, uh, probably a caricature from the last century would be something like this that so the historicals uh, the, the Gospels give us some sort of historical record of of, uh, of Jesus and what Jesus did, uh, but we don 't go to the Gospels for theology, we have to go to the letters we have to go to paul 's letters in particular for theology, so the gospels give us nice stories for Sunday school, but if we want real theology, we go to Paul. Um, That would be a caricature of uh, where a lot of people would have stand. One of the consequences of that is is that the the preaching of the Gospels has also suffered. So we come along and we're hoping for a sermon on Mark's Gospel, for example. What we actually get is a sermon on Paul. Um, I don't know if you've had that experience. Or even worse, a a, a sermon on one of the uh, big Christian confessions, the Westminster Confession or something like that. We don't really get a sermon on the Gospels. Uh, so those are the two things uh, that we're going to try and attack in this session. So the aim really is to try and restore some of your confidence in the Gospels as historical documents, primary historical documents, and uh, to end the confusion about how to um, approach these documents um, as, as Christians and as theology and as something that's going to feed and, uh, uh, and build us as a, as a church family. Okay so we 're going to tackle those uh, one by one, beginning with uh, regaining some confidence in the Gospels as history. Now, I want to suggest here that uh, one way back into this is to, to rediscover uh, confidence in the Gospels as, as history, remembering that they are eyewitness uh, testimony. so let 's take out uh, mark 's gospel you probably can't hardly see that that says mark 's Gospel. Um, let me give you uh, some examples uh, from mark 's Gospel. One of the distinctive things about Mark's Gospel is that it begins and ends with Peter. The first disciple to be uh, called is, is Peter. or called Simon, of course, at the time. And then the last name mentioned, apart from Jesus' name in, in the Gospel, is that of that of Peter. So he's the kind of thread, the, the, uh, the personal thread that runs all the way through the Gospel. And um, it does seem that this... Mark's Gospel is Peter's eyewitness testimony on the life of Jesus, recorded by Mark, written up by Mark, but his eyewitness testimony. And there are some notable similarities that you can draw between uh, Mark's Gospel and Peter's letters in the New Testament. So it begins and ends with Peter. And uh, what's very striking, I think, when you actually read that, engage with the evidence, is just how vivid some of the accounts are. So in particular, the, the miracle accounts in Mark's Gospel are extremely vivid. So let me just read to you from one of those. So if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 5 in your Bible. Mark chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 24. Just, I'm just going to read from one, one part of one, one, one account of these great miracles. So Mark chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she'd been freed from her suffering. And number of striking things about, even about those few verses. I just want to pick up um, the, the sense of vividness there. It really does seem that somebody has gone and interviewed this woman and asked her about her experience as she, as she went through this. You know, there's a lot of personal detail in there about her history, isn't there? And there's a lot of personal detail in there about her, you know, what she was feeling at the time. Um, there's a vividness to the account. which which gives it an authenticity as eyewitness evidence. And Mark's Gospel in particular has very long and vivid accounts of Jesus' miracles. Uh, The other Gospels have them too. They tend to kind of condense them down a little bit, but it's Mark's Gospel that has that kind of vividness to it. Um, It's perhaps even more explicit in John's Gospel. So some very obvious examples from John's Gospel. First, from um, uh, what happens at the cross. I'm thinking particularly of the moment when uh, uh, the soldier uh, pierces Jesus' side and and blood and water come from Jesus' side. So this is John chapter 19. Just let me read um, part of that to you. John chapter 19, reading from verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now, I think that's pr- pretty obvious that what John is doing there is saying is that I saw this. I saw this with my own eyes. This particular detail I saw with my own eyes. And he's trying to, he was bending over backwards, trying to pers- persuade us as readers that he really did see it. He's absolutely telling the truth. This is eyewitness testimony. Another example, just uh, probably over the page in your Bibles from uh, John chapter 20. Uh, this is as the disciples are running to the tomb. They've heard news from Mary, and they've run to the tomb to find out for themselves. So chapter, John chapter 20, and uh, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, who's almost certainly John again, uh, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Uh, No, it's those kinds of really interesting. Now, why would you put that little detail in if you weren't there and if it wasn't you? It's that kind of thing that really gives the the gospel accounts a kind of ring of authenticity to them, that ring of eyewitness uh, detail. So all that's quite exciting, I think. And a really important thing for us to rediscover and uh, rediscover some of the... um, uh, reclaim some of our confidence in the gospels as eyewitness testimony. And if you want to chase up uh, that idea, um, here's a, a, it's a fairly hefty book. It's an extremely readable book called mm-hmm. Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, Richard Balcombe. So that comes kind of strongly recommend. If you want to chase up these ideas and, and get thoroughly immersed back in it, uh, the, the Gospels, as history, um, that's an excellent book uh, to turn to. So having thought about that, um, let's just uh, see if we can answer this question. What is a Gospel and uh, various different suggested answers have been made um, um, over history. Uh, so, for example, is, it, is, is a gospel a biography? Is it a biography of Jesus? So that's one possibility. Uh, well, we'd have to say that it's not like a modern biography, does it, is it? There's a huge tracts of Jesus' life that are not touched upon in the gospels. And uh, there are a very, very strong focus on, on, on particularly, you know, the, the, the last moments of Jesus' life. So Mark's Gospel, is virtually half of the Gospel is dedicated to the last uh, few weeks of Jesus' life. So it's certainly not like a modern biography. However, you'd have to say that um, as people have explored this a bit more, it's, a, it's not as different from ancient biography as, you, uh, as people once thought. Um, there are lots of similarities. So in some, in some senses this is uh, the Gospel writers are, 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 are writing in a, in a relatively familiar genre, this, uh, this, this genre of ancient uh, biography, uh, which wouldn't be as quite as linear or as um, formulaic as a modern biography um, would be. So that's uh, one thing to note. Um, but there's, there's history going on here as well, and there's salvation history going on here as well, isn't there? So is it, um, in the gospel, an uncovering of God acting decisively in history? Uh, What's sometimes called apocalyptic history. So apocalyptic just means um, an unveiling or or, or revealing. Um, Is what we're being shown in the gospels a kind of a a, a window into this great act of God in the middle of history? Well, certainly that is true. Um, Although uh, in some senses, it's more episodic than that might imply. There's more kind of mundane detail in, in the Gospels as well. But that's something that we could, we could uh, factor in. Is it just a historical record? Uh, well, that's also true as well. we are saying that um, uh, uh, the Gospels are eyewitness testimony, uh, and obviously, when you've got a number of eyewitnesses, you want to make sure that that eyewitness testimony is preserved for the future. Um, so uh, you might have heard, for example, to take a different example of the, of the, of the Holocaust. So the Holocaust, a major historical um, event of lots and lots of eyewitnesses. Um, and uh, recently, uh, a lot of those eyewitnesses have been coming to the end of their lives. So there's been big efforts... Um, over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, to collect together all that eyewitness evidence and make sure that it's preserved for the future. So, there's something called the, the Shoah Foundation that collects all that evidence and tries to put it together and preserve it for the future. Well, that is also certainly true, and it's interesting that the, the dating of the Gospels, which is, although it's contested, it's probably around the time that the eyewitnesses would have been getting very old. Okay, so it's very important, therefore to make sure that the eyewitness testimony is collected together and preserved for the future. So that's certainly going on as well. Um, So I think we'd probably have to say all three of these things. There's a biographical element, there's a kind of historical uh, element, a theological element, and there's this historical record, eyewitness testimony element. Uh, We could certainly say, therefore, that a gospel is um, purposeful. You know, it's, it's... been put together for a reason uh, probably that reason goes beyond merely preserving stuff for the future we'll, I'll think, about, we'll think about that briefly just at the end um, it's historical this is eyewitness testimony uh, and it's, his, it's about what God is doing in history to the great, it's eyewitness testimony to the great thing that God is doing in the world uh, through Jesus Christ so that's what we're engaging with as we engage Um, with a gospel. Now, so that's one thing. So that hopefully will um, begin to restore some of our confidence in the gospels as history. What we've now got to learn to do then, having regained our cultures, is learn how to read them. How do we, relearning how to read a gospel. Um, And this is what we're going to spend a little bit of, uh, of time on. Um... And I, what I'm going to do is just give some basic points at the beginning, and then we are going to look at in a moment what you might call some Bible reading tools, some tools to help you read the Gospels. Uh, and these will key into the, um, the study notes um, that, that, that uh, I'll be handing out uh, later uh, this morning. And then finally, um, just as we finish, and we're trying to finish around 9.15, we'll have a think about the, the purpose, the purpose of each of the Gospels. Okay, so this is learning to read the how how to read the gospels. The first thing I want to say, really, is is read a gospel normally. Don't be odd about it. Okay, don't read a gospel strangely. That's not the way to do it. Read a gospel normally, right? It's it's just it's it's a book. Uh, Read it as you would normally uh, read a book. In other words, don't. Uh, jump around in, in, in this narrative. Don't pick and choose. Don't just focus on individual verses. Read it starting at the beginning, engaging with the story, all the way to the end. A whole gospel. Not just bits of it, but the whole gospel. And as you read it linearly like that, ask questions as you're going through, as you would do reading other kinds of narratives. Build up an understanding You know, build up uh, uh, the the theology that's being presented to you. See how it's uh, very often in the Gospels um, uh, given in broad brushstrokes at the beginning of the Gospel and you get more and more precision about what's going on as you read through. And as you read through, you'll see your questions answered and uh, the various different conflicts that are are there within the storyline resolved. Um, This is probably um, the number one insight that you need to read a Gospel, which is just to read it normally from the beginning um, and you'll find that that uh, uh, brings them alive in a way that uh, perhaps uh, they never have been um, before for you uh, but as well as that as well read, as reading you know from the beginning to the end uh, re- read like a, a book you love and hopefully they will be, these will become books that you love over and over again so my daughters for example there are certain there are certain books that they love and they read them over and over again I can't you know They're slightly not very good books, some of them. We kind of wonder why they're reading them over and over again. But they do read them over and over again. And uh, we need to be like that uh, with the Gospels as well, reading them over and over again. And in some ways, these are designed to be read over and over again. When we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, we'll find that in particular, is that when you get to the end, one of the, the main things that should happen to you when you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel is that you should be encouraged to read it again. Um, read it so that you can, you can go back and find out what Jesus is really teaching you uh, to do in the mission you've been sent out on. Um, so they are designed uh, that kind of way. So within church uh, communities, within church families, the Gospels will be there, part of the fabric of, of how the family works, read over and over again. Let's think about uh, some tools you can use as... Uh, you do that. I'm going to take some examples from the the Sermon on the Mount, so if you could uh, be turning to Matthew chapter 5. We probably don't have time for all of these examples, uh, but we'll see how we go. First kind of question, the the thing about these Bible tools I don't want these to seem like mechanical things, you know. It can can seem a little uh, mechanical describing this way. They're they're really just tips on how to read and how to to read carefully. Uh, So one thing that you want to do as you read is to look for this structure and arrangement uh, that the author has put into this. Um, It's, um, I think, uh, has been of huge benefit uh, to the church in history that that originally the, the Gospels the Gospel accounts would have, been, would have been written so that they could be read out in public. So we wouldn't, obviously, when the people, uh, the church, churches first encountered this document, they wouldn't have had individual Bibles on the table as we've got this morning. Rather, there'd just be one person with the script who would then read it out. Now, what that means is that the Bible writers would have put in a number of different clues um, that would have been obvious orally as, you know, as you hear it as to how things are arranged, so those are very useful markers to be able to pick out. So things like uh, repetition, um, bracketing, uh, things like that. These are the sort of questions you can ask. These are good questions to ask in Bible studies as well. How has the author arranged this? What are the structural clues that we can find here? Why is it structured like this? It's not just just a question of working out what the structure is, but you want to know, you want to work out why it has been structured like this. Uh, so let's take some very very brief examples from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so the Sermon on the Mount begins like this. Um, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and so on, and then it ends like this. So this is the end of chapter seven. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, as he taught as one who had authority in not their teachers of the law, And then we go on to, into chapter 8. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Okay, so you've got um, a sequence of ideas there at the beginning. Uh, you've got a crowd, mountainside, um, people following, that kind of thing. And at the end, you've got the same thing happening again. crowds, listening, mountainside, uh, following Okay, so that's the that's, uh, that's, uh, idea of bracketing. That makes us um, very, very clear um, that, that is, this is uh, one unit that, that uh, Matthew wants us to consider. Um, uh, uh, and that should be obvious as we're, as we're reading through, through it as well. Uh, that's true internally within um, the Gospels as well. So take the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are the, those sort of blessing sayings that sort are of chapter 5, verses 3 to, to 10... And if you look at those closer, you'll see that those two have also got structural markers in them. So look at uh, verse 3, for example, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Verse 10, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that brackets off those Beatitudes as one unit. Uh, Look at verse 6, mention of righteousness. And then again, verse 10 again, persecuted because of righteousness. Those two markers divide those eight Beatitudes into two, so you get two blocks of four. Um, so it's those kind of markers that you're looking out for as you're, as you're reading through. Um, have we got time for this one? Just very briefly, yes. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 5, do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, and then if you turn to chapter 7, verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12. So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets acting as uh, brackets around that section. That is going to be the subject matter of the bulk of the sermon, in fact. Um, What is it? What does it mean to really understand the law and the prophets in the light of Jesus Christ? So that's structure and arrangement. Plot and context. What do I mean by that? This is part of this idea of reading the, uh, reading the Gospels normally. Uh, what is the context? Uh, what has happened? Where are we in the story? What kind of trajectory are we on? What are the conflicts that have happened? What are the questions that have been raised? What are the unresolved issues and questions um, that we're seeking answers to? Those kinds of things. Um, and again, these are very, very quick examples um, so the back. where are we? Well, Jesus is, um, uh, is out proclaiming the kingdom, uh, chapter 4, verses 23 and 25. Um, his teaching. Okay, So that's the background. Well, here we've got an example of his teaching. Um, he's doing things in, uh, in word, he's in his teaching, and also in deed. We get the word part of that in the sermon, chapters 5 through to 7. We get the deed part of that in the chapters that follow, chapters 8 and nine in the miracle story is there um, 516 is an, you, you get this kind of issue within the sermon itself so 516 I think is one of the most important verses in the whole of the sermon where well, Jesus says in the, in the same way let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven that is an example of a key verse that raises all sorts of questions that you might want to be answered what good deeds should you do how are they going to work uh, to bring praise to your Father in heaven? You know, there's not enough content in there, is there, to actually put this into practice. So that's, that's the issue that's then going to get resolved in the rest of the sermon. That's what's going to be unpacked in the rest of the sermon as uh, we find out the kind of good deeds that Jesus has in mind, the kind of good deeds will, will bring praise, not to yourself, but to your Father in heaven. And then the sermon of the whole raises all sorts of questions as well. Um, we'll talk about this later in the morning. Um, but one of the one of the one of the huge dangers of the sermon of the mount is taking it completely out of context. And um, we've got Jesus, what we've got here is Jesus, in some ways, teaching the law, um, exhorting his disciples to do certain things. But what we're going to find is that what he's exhorting them to do is, in some way. in in real continuity, what what God's people have been exhorted to do in the the past, in the law. The problem, of course, is that we know that that God's people and the law in the past has failed, and failed lamentably. So there's this huge unanswered question at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What's going to be different this time round? What's going to change things so this is actually going to be possible? in the world? That is an unanswered question in the Sermon on the Mount. If you take it out of concept, context, that, that's never going to get answered. And it's a, it's a question that's only answered, in fact, uh, when you get to the very end of the Gospel and everything that Jesus has uh, come to do has been accomplished and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Okay, so that's an example in the Sermon as a whole. Uh, repetition. Repetition. Um, Why not have a couple of minutes thinking about this uh, for yourselves uh, just as a little break um, at this point. Are there any repeated words or phrases here? Why are they being emphasised? Have a look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Skim through that very quickly. Uh, what What are the repeated phrases in that section and why are they there? Just a couple of minutes thinking about that. Okay, sorry, that wasn't very long, was it? Never mind. (laughs) Uh, So hopefully that wasn't too difficult. What what are they? What are the repeated phrases in this section? Got three things. Sorry, hypocrites. Hypocrites. Okay, so that's there in verse two and yeah, verse five and sixteen. Excellent. Okay, so this idea of hypocrisy, this is a play-acting. Uh, that's one of the issues that, that covers these three issues. We've got giving, we've got prayer, we've got fasting. Uh, that's one of the issues there. Repeat. So that's a repeat of words, repeated phrases. Sorry, say, say it again. When you do this, when you do that. Yes, that's true. Okay, so he's going from topic to topic. That, that's helpful. In picking that out? Done uh, in secret. Uh, done in secret. So there's this issue about uh, whether you're going to give in secret, whether you're going to pray in secret, fasting in secret. Yeah. Tell the truth. I tell you the truth. Yep. that's uh, not just a repeated phrase in this section, but across the whole of the uh, sermon. In fact, all of the gospel. Reward. Reward, okay. Uh, that's, in fact, that's part of a bigger phrase, isn't it? They have received their reward in full. Okay, that gets repeated uh, three times. Um, anything else? There's a repetition of structure, so it starts off like by saying, when you're doing a certain thing, don't do it this way, do do it this way. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Repeated structure, don't do it this way, do it this way, yeah. One last thing might be good to pick out. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, fantastic. A how your will see what yes, that's right, okay. So at the, end of, at the end of each section, the Father sees and will reward you. Okay. So just seeing those repeated patterns is going is to pick out what the big ideas are in this section, what the issue is and what the big ideas are. And the, the purpose of the passage. So that's very helpful there. Uh, what else can we uh, talk about? The vocabulary tool. This is about making sure that we understand that uh, words and phrases within the gospel. Is an important word here. We need to find out more about. Uh, we'll talk about this later this morning. Actually, rather than rather than thinking about it now, uh, you'll find that the, the word righteous or righteousness. It's one of the heavily repeated words across the sermon. It appears in really key places as well. Um, that is going to puzzle us, um, but it's also very, very important to get straight. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Another important repeated phrase is um, that's important to get a grip on is that, that the kingdom of the heavens, or the kingdom. Uh, so we'll come back to that later this morning as well. Uh, quotations and allusions. Um, so obviously, this is an important part of what's going on here. Uh, why is there a quotation from the Old Testament, for example, here? Or is there an allusion to the Old Testament, back to the Old Testament? Or there could be an allusion to something that's already happened uh, within earlier in the Gospel. Uh, what does it add or reinforce? That's a very key question. Are we going to be careful with quotations? Sometimes there's a danger in, in Bible studies and Bible teaching of of um, thinking that unless you've you've understood the quotation and the Old Testament background in its context, then you cannot understand what's going on. What we find rather is that uh, the quotations and allusions uh, reinforce what's going on at the surface level. In other words, it's quite possible to read... This is a brave statement, but, uh, but I believe it to be true. It is quite possible to, be, to read Matthew's Gospel without knowing the Old Testament very well and still pick up what's going on. Okay. Uh, that's even more true of Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, as we're saying at the moment, is probably intended for a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. Uh, so it is possible to understand Mark's Gospel without understanding the whole of the Old Testament. However, the more you understand the Old Testament and the more you understand the way that the Gospel author is using and drawing in Old Testament quotations and allusions, the the more precise and and, uh, clear your picture of what's going on will be. So these are there as reinforcement. I used to say when we did Bible studies on Mark, uh, squeeze Mark dry. So before you turn back to the Old Testament, make sure you understand what's going on on the surface with the verses in front of you before you turn back to the Old Testament. And then the Old Testament will uh, just help to reinforce a few things or clarify a few things. Um, The Sermon on the Mount has got lots of examples of this. We won't go through them now. Uh, Lots of allusions to Isaiah uh, throughout. (laughs) You can see here chapter 5 verse 16 being a key one. Isaiah 49, verse 6, is from one of the servant songs, as we'll uh, look at later in the morning. Um, yeah, anyway, lots and lots, uh, mostly from Isaiah. Uh, linking words, um, connecting words, so therefore, because, so that for, etc. Um, there's some great examples of that in verses 17 to 20. This is a, a point where it's sometimes good to look across different translations of the Bible as well. In fact, you'll find that there are even differences between the 1984 version of the NIV and the 2011 version of the NIV. Um, the older version of the NIV was heavily criticised for often leaving out some of these connecting words. Uh, so one of the revisions uh, they did in 2011 was to put them back in again, uh, which is a good thing. Okay, so if you want to check that out, that's um, often quite helpful. And in fact, the 1984 NIV, in that section, leaves that there are four connecting words, and the 1984 uh, version leaves out two of them, scandalously. <laughs> um, but the 2011 version puts them back in again. Okay, but it's uh, worth checking across um, different versions. Here's an important question um, Who am I? is always a difficult question to answer uh, when you're reading narrative. Um, it may. It, It may well be when you're reading narrative that you're not intended to be anyone, that the author is writing this and there are lots of characters within the narrative and he doesn't want you to kind of associate yourself with with any of them. It may not be part of his purpose to do that. So you've got to be very cautious about this. However, um, it may also be true that he does want you to uh, identify with some of the characters in the narrative and align yourself with them and see things from their point of view. Uh, So in Genesis, for example, I think that's true of Abraham. You know, we, we need to have faith like Abraham, so we follow what, you know, the kind of pattern that he goes through. Uh, the Gospels um, uh, raise a similar issue. And in particular, what are we going to do about these disciples? Are, we, are they there for us to follow? The difficulty there, of course, is that you find for most of the Gospels that but, but the disciples are absolutely clueless and they'll be ridiculous to follow them. Okay. Nevertheless, it does seem that... Um, uh, that the Gospel writers do expect us in some way to empathise with the disciples, especially as we go through the whole story. So take Peter, for example, who, of course, is of little faith and doubting and pretty hopeless for most of the Gospel. And towards the end, of course, he's humbled greatly, yes, he rejects Jesus and uh, denies Jesus and is brought to to tears as a consequence of that. Um, But then he's restored. Okay, so there's, there's great worth in following along with, with Peter what's going, there, going on there. The, the gospel will then humble you and bring you to a place uh, where you can be useful uh, to God. So does the author want us to align ourselves with any of the characters in a passage? Uh, if so, how does it work? Uh, so in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, the key issue is are we in the crowd? We've got a double audience in the sermon. Are we in the crowd or are we with the disciples? Um, So that's something we're going to think about later as well. Now, I'm just going to take two more minutes and then we'll stop for a break Uh, just to give you a very, very quick sketch of what I think the purpose of the Gospels, uh, across the Gospels is. So this is all on your handout. uh, So you can take it away and look at it in more detail later if you would like to. I was saying earlier that the Gospels are purposeful documents. They're not just there as historical records meant to be sort of stored away in an archive somewhere. They're actually there to do something within uh, Christian communities and in the world. God works through them to do things. But what things does he do through each of the different Gospels? So um, here's my uh, take on Mark's Gospel. Most of, <laughs> most of the Gospels, not surprisingly, are all about belief and faith in Jesus um, I think uh, the way that 's described in, in, in Mark 's Gospel is this kind of desperate trust in Jesus, the Son of God, able to deal with those suffering in, uh, in fear under the shadow of death. Um, that way of looking at things helps us to explain some of the strange things that happen uh, towards the end of Mark 's gospel. You might know that one of the um, odd bits of Mark 's gospel is the way it ends, so it ends uh, very abruptly uh, with the, the women running from the tomb in fear. But once you've understood that the whole gospel is about this movement from living in fear under the shadow of death uh, to faith, that starts to make a bit more sense. So that, that, in other words, the way the gospel ends is a clue, a cue for you to think about uh, your faith with respect uh, to Jesus. It was probably an evangelistic text. Uh, John's gospel also an evangelistic text. That Mark's gospel intended for a Gentile audience. John probably more for a Jewish audience. Uh, Matthew, Um, we'll be talking lots more about this. Uh, Belief again, but a a belief that understands the whole of God's purposes in the world, draws people into God's mission in the world, trains them for it. Uh, So this is much more for a Christian uh, audience. Um, It would have spoken very powerfully to a Jewish Christian audience, uh, perhaps a little reluctant to get involved in the Gentile mission, but Matthew's Gospel would have persuaded them that 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 was absolutely important. Likewise, the Gospel of Luke, um, building on Mark again, uh, but extending all the way into Acts as well, uh, which is also written by Luke, uh, looking for this kind of confident, outgoing, persevering belief. Um, One of the odd things about the Book of Acts is, again, the way it ends. It ends with this kind of shipwreck story. On earth would you end the Book of Acts with a shipwreck story? Uh, but the more you think about it, the more you realise that, that that then is then a, a, a model or a picture of what the Christian life should be like. Uh, Paul is again setting as an example of how to cope in times of trouble, trusting the Lord in an outgoing way. Um, so that explains that a bit. And then John's gospel, very clearly about belief, uh, but probably now uh, in particular directed at uh, Jewish people, got uh, dismayed by the way that Judaism is going and need to be attracted into what Jesus is doing. So then, um, I'm going to finish because we need to stop. Uh, This is what it's all about. It's all about reading lovingly, uh, reading with confidence that what we're reading is eyewitness testimony, this is history, and all about reading thoughtfully and sensibly. Okay, okay. And the the tools that I've mentioned this morning are a starting point in that, Um, but it's it's that careful reading and repeated reading uh, that really is what it's all about. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a break. Heavenly Father, you have been most merciful both to us as your people in the Lord Jesus and to the world around us by bringing these gospel accounts of your son to be written. And we want to thank you for them. And we thank you for how engaging they are, how exciting they are, how they bring us uh, face to face and close uh, to the Lord Jesus himself. And uh, we pray that you would indeed help us to rediscover a confidence in them as real history, as history that matters. And we pray that you would also help us to read them better. Read them as you would like us to read them uh, so that we know Jesus better and are better able to bring uh, your glory into the world uh, as we uh, spread the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name.